German language uh, magazine. I don't speak German, I don't write German, of course, but, uh, but one of the things that they asked me to write, whether I think that there would be uh, the building of the third temple. And the thing that I briefly talked about there, I said, you know, when we look at the Old Testament, both at the tabernacle and then at the first and second temple, uh, there were seasons where God uh, commanded the people of Israel uh, to build both the tabernacle at first and then later on the permanent uh, temples. Uh, one was because that was the place that God was in the midst of his people. You know, for example, in the, in the tabernacle, uh, on each side, on each of the four sides, there were three tribes by their names, which tribes would be there. And God was in the midst of their people. You know, later on, uh, already in Deuteronomy, God commanded the people of Israel that uh, they, would, so they were supposed to come three times in a year uh, to the temple during those three festivals. We read about it in Deuteronomy 16. So the first one was, of course, Passover. The second one was Pentecost. And we know, uh, we read in Acts chapter 2, in the Pentecost, Jews from all over the Roman Empire were in Jerusalem. And that's when the Holy Spirit came. And the third, of course, is the Feast of Tabernacle. So they were supposed to come uh, also, even in the temple, to the tabernacle, because that was when the presence of God was. And of course, the second purpose of the tabernacle and the temple was for sacrifices. So those were the two uh, main reasons only reasons uh, for that. And in Christ, both of those things have been fulfilled. Uh, first of all, of course, uh, uh, you know, through the Holy Spirit, uh, the Spirit of Christ that He sent to us, the Comforter, He has made us a living temple. So God's presence is with us everywhere and all the time. Of course, secondly, is the, is the fact that uh, Christ is the one and for all sacrifice. So in that sense, uh, there is no need for the third temple, and certainly Christ doesn't need a temple to return. He would, uh, he would return. So that was just a question that I was asking. I thought that I would uh, respond to it. Now in the first two seminars, we looked at the two Gs. We talked about the grand and the glorious story. And then we talked about the two Rs, the restoration, and the return, restoration of the language and return to the land, which were mainly about the past and a little bit about the present of Israel. Now, we endeavor to look at the future with the two Fs, the faithfulness of God and the future of Israel. And obviously, I believe that these two subjects are related and tied uh, together. The gracious and the merciful God is in the business of glorifying his name by saving a people for himself. In other words, God is transforming us, fallen man, from being dead in our sins to being alive, justifying us to the atonement that Christ has provided for us, that once and for all sacrifice that I just mentioned. The all-wise God often brings his salvation to judgment. Uh, one of the recent books that I read that I really recommend is by actually uh, Ian uh, Hamilton, and it says, the glory of God 
and his salvation through judgment. And we see those two things often together. Everything he does, above all, is for his glory. And in both judgment and salvation, he gets glorified. And that is important for us to remember at the beginning of this seminar that we will talk um, about Israel. We've spoken a lot about the faithfulness of God, but just a few things we have already seen. As I said, the faithfulness of God, despite of man's total unfaithfulness, the pages of both the Old and the New Testament testify to that both uh, to Israel and the church. And, uh, and tomorrow when we talk uh, about Hosea, we see those two things together, side by side, or, or verse, verse after verse uh, in that. And even after the close of the canon of the scripture, we still continue to see the same pattern and contrast between the creator and the creatures. And if we thought that with time we would become better, uh, I think that these last uh, viewers, and I mentioned that earlier, have shown us that that's not really the case. And we continue to prove that in many ways we are still the children of Adam. But thankfully, God doesn't change in his character, and he will remain faithful uh, as the scripture teaches us. It's interesting that when Balak, the Moabite king, sent for Balaam to curse the people of Israel, as part of the discourse of Balaam, uh, he says these words in Numbers, uh, in Numbers, he says, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? And then he continues, and in verse 19 of Numbers 23, he says to the king, he says this, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God will not change. In fact, he has chosen not to be changed. And all his promises are yes and amen in Christ. So from eternity past to the eternity future, God will remain faithful. And this is one thing that our fast changing world that we can truly hold on and rely on. And the faithfulness of God is like an anchor in a stormy sea that would make sure that the ship who remains above the water. So since God is such a faithful God, there is hope for Israel, but also there is hope for the church, as we will see. So now we will want to look a little bit at the place of Israel in the redemptive uh, plan of God. But before we look at the future of Israel, we must look a little bit at the past and the present of Israel as a guide. No, I think that it would not be probably an exaggeration to say that most Christians will acknowledge the important role that Israel had in the history of redemption in the past. But they may differ in their understanding of the role of Israel in playing in the present and particularly in the future. I think that to the people of Israel, God has reveal himself to us uh, from the church in the Old Testament. We learn much about God, his character, his plan of 
salvation and other things. We have received his revealed and the return and his written word to the law, the prophets, and the writings. We have received it with all the benefits that comes with being called the people of God, his chosen people. And more importantly, to the Jewish people, God sent his son, who was born as a Jew, lived, died, and raised as a Jew. And to put it in Paul's, uh, Apostle Paul's own words, this is what he says in Romans 9, verses 1 to 5. It's kind of the introduction to those three chapters. It says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul, the Jewish rabbi, was the first and the greatest persecutor of the church. He was trained under the well-known Rabbi Gamliel. He was known as the Saul of Tarsus, as he was known before his conversion. And he was a unique and unusual man prepared for the exclusive and exceptional task of bringing the Jewish gospel to the Gentile world of his time. His uniqueness was in the fact that he was well-educated, well-read, and was born into a Pharisaic family, and even excelled as Pharisee. Being a Roman citizen who was also a distinguished legal scholar from Tarsus, and yet he truly and fully saw himself as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was the apostles to the Gentiles, and yet in every city that he would go, first he would visit the local synagogues and engage the Jewish people with the gospel and the resurrected Jesus. And what's interesting is when we read in the last chapter of the book of Acts, Paul is in Rome in prison. He's awaiting the Caesar to cut his head eventually. But even there, he's sitting and arguing with the Jewish people about Christ being the Messiah, the resurrected Messiah. And last but most important fact about his uniqueness was that Paul received the gospel directly from Christ to a special revelation, unlike any other apostles. He testified of this, interestingly enough, in the book of Galatians, there in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he writes this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Later on in verse 17 of that same chapter, he tells us, 
that he went to Arabia, most likely the southern part of Israel today known as, as the Negev. And for some, for some time, there he received further teachings and guidelines from the Lord. All of this make Paul a qualified person to write about the future of Israel and the redemptive plan of God for the people of Israel that is yet to come into fulfillment. But when Paul, the great persecutor of the church, was faced with Christ on the way to Damascus, he became the greatest apostle. That's what happens when we are faced with the resurrected Christ. He became evangelist, theologian of the new or the restored Judaism, known also as Christianity. After all, his master didn't come to start a new religion called Christianity, and neither did Paul, even though contrary to what many of the academicians are trying to say that Paul, really, he was the one reinvented the Christian faith. Apostle Paul in the three chapters of Romans masterfully as a well-trained rabbi with extraordinary intelligence and logic lays down the place of Israel in the past, present and also future. In the introduction to this chapter, the verses that I uh, just read, he tells us that every spiritual gift that this word was given by God, it was to the Israelites. The last and the most important one, being Christ, who came from the same race. The same race that not only rejected and persecuted their own Messiah, but also became also the most fierce persecutor of even Paul himself. And yet, this is a great yet or but, God in his faithfulness and wisdom chose not only to send the Messiah to them but also to give them a future and a hope just as Jeremiah told the exiles in Babylon by preserving the Jewish nation while so many nations that we read about them in the Old Testament don't exist anymore God showed us not only his faithfulness but also that he will execute fully and perfectly his plan of salvation to his son and his chosen people, the people of Israel. Considering what God has done and given to the Israelite, Paul begins chapter 9 with this amazing and yet difficult saying to digest, to make sure that we take his word seriously he says the same thing three times and uses the Holy Spirit as his witness. And then he goes on to tell us that he could wish that he was accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers. And so that we may not make a mistake, who is he talking about? He says, my kinsmen or his kinsmen according to the flesh. So he's certainly referring uh, to the Jewish people. We can see why he began this amazing statement with the threefold declaration. He had already tasted the goodness of Christ. He has seen the benefits of faith in the promised Messiah. And yet, he was willing to give up all 
of that for the sake of his kinsmen, the Israelites. Paul's love for them was so much that he was willing to give up his own relationship and his eternity with Christ in order that they would come to believe in their own Messiah. You know, I served the body of Messiah in Israel for more than three decades, and possibly I may be willing to die for that if necessary. I would have to think about that. But I can never say that I am willing to give up my salvation and be colored for my master for the sake of the salvation of my kinsmen. But Paul was able to say that confidently. I believe that this is a sure evidence of the fact that Paul believed that there was a good possibility for a future hope for the people of Israel. And he builds these three chapters to that end. Because otherwise, if there was no possibility, why would he give up, not his life, but his eternity for their sake? Paul gave up or was willing to give up his salvation for something that was real, and he believed that it would happen. And Paul, after his eye-opening introduction, begins to show, first and foremost, the sovereignty of God, particularly in regard to the salvation of man and the Jewish people. He's laying a foundation for yet another hard thing that he would say later on when we come to it. And that is to say, as we see, but how he dealt with Israel. So as he's trying to build that foundation, he tells us, Jacob I loved, Esau, Esau, I hated. At the heart of the sovereignty of God is his predestination. Jacob I loved, Esau, I hated. And Rebecca was told already, before the twins were born, that the older shall serve the younger. And this was exactly contrary to the cultural norms of the time. So even in this, we find predestination already in the pages of the Old Testament. One of the things that we can be assured of is that there is no truth in the New Testament that doesn't have its roots back in the Old Testament, including the predestination and even the five solos of the Reformation. Steve Lawson has a good book on, uh, on that. I believe that one of the main reasons that Paul wrote these three chapters is to answer a question that naturally comes to mind. The question is that if all of these things belong to Israelite and if we received everything from them, then how is it that they, of all the people, rejected the promised Messiah as a nation? Of course, this is a very legitimate question to ask because it seemed to be very natural that they should have been the first one to recognize Jesus as the Savior and the Savior of the world. But often, what may seem to be natural to us 
may not be so in God's economy. He's sovereign and wise, but also a good God who always acts according to his character. We know that the first follower of Jesus were Jewish people that not only followed him, but became his first disciples and the ones who took the gospel to the other parts of the world and established the New Testament church. In book of Acts that I referred to earlier, chapter 15, we read about the first church council that it comments to deal with the issue of what to do with all these Gentiles that all of a sudden, not only they believe in the God of Israel, but they have embraced also the Messiah of Israel. Today, it's unusual when a Jewish person comes to faith in Jesus. In fact, sometimes they even invite him to come to Arkansas to talk. <laughs> but there was a time when Gentiles, when Gentiles came to believe in Jesus, there was a need to have a church council to decide, and in fact, a church council in Jerusalem to decide what to do with them. Paul uses his own example to prove that God has not rejected Israel because he himself, in as an Israelite, descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. And throughout, we know that throughout the last 2,000 years, uh, since the church council in Jerusalem, there has been always Jewish people and prominent rabbis who believed in Jesus as their Lord and their Messiah. And today, in one sense, I'm standing here before you as an Israelite and as a proof of what God has done because God has not rejected His people. And also, I'm glad to say that we are starting to see a real change toward the gospel among the people of Israel. And I will talk about some of those things briefly uh, towards the end. People are more open today to the gospel and there is less antagonism uh, toward us as Jewish Christians or as Messianic Jews. So God has not rejected His people of old and He's working among them, but He's working according to His way, but particularly according to His timing. And our Jewishness, we need to realize, gives us no benefit when it comes to our eternal destiny. And the fact that Jewish blood circulates in my vein or in our vein has no benefit when one day we will be standing before the resurrected Christ. The only blood that can atone is the blood of Christ. Amen. Paul is telling us that in the present time, God in His providence and full sovereignty has brought a partial hardening on Israel so that the gospel would go out to the Gentiles. Now that is the second hard saying of Paul after what he said earlier. So we'll talk about that in a second. But think with me hypothetically for a second, and humanly speaking, what could have happened if we as the Jewish people would have embraced Jesus as our Lord and as our Messiah? I think again, we're talking hypothetically, but I think that most likely what would have happened is that the gospel as we know it would have remained within the geographical but also ethnical boundary of the Jewish people. 
But as it was, God again in His sovereignty allowed for a certain period of time for the Jewish people to be damned so that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. And that is a hard saying. But you see, Paul as a trained rabbi has provided that foundation when he says, Jacob I love, Esau I hated. He has told us already that our salvation is not something about us. And then of course later on, he talks about the potter and the pot, that the potter has the right to do with the same clay some vessels of honor and some vessels of dishonor. So he's giving us the fact of God's total sovereignty and he's preparing us for this hard saying in Romans chapter 11. And as a result, because God allowed that hardening or partial hardening, and that's the important word, the partial hardening or the temporary partial hardening to come on the Jewish people, it enabled the gospel to spread out to all the places of the world, including here in Arkansas. So Paul, interesting enough, uses the word mystery, mysterion in Greek, which in New Testament actually refers to some truth that was a mystery and hidden or, or not understood in the Old Testament, but now in the New Testament, or under the New Covenant, has been revealed. And thankfully for us, who live in this time of the redemptive history, there is really no mystery that is needed for our life and salvation that has not been revealed to us in the pages of the scripture. But that mystery is the fact that Gentiles have become full partakers in the blessing that once belonged only or mainly to the people of Israel. So because of the rejection of Jesus, the door was opened for Gentiles to come in. And this is the significance of Jesus' parable of the wedding and some of his other parables that he's talking about, because it helps us to see that the church has not replaced Israel, but has been grafted in. So I repeat that, the church has not replaced Israel, but has been grafted in. And this is the reason that Paul clearly argues in the beginning of chapter 11 that God has not rejected his people because he cannot reject them. And we have seen that already in the earlier seminars. And even though they have rejected him, God has not rejected him. And this is in conformity with all that we've seen in the Old Testament and the history of the people of Israel. Back then, they also kept rejecting God and would follow the idols of the nations. And yet God remained and will remain faithful to them. And yes, he will punish them as he promised, but he will remain faithful. He never divorced them. Again, it has always been about we being the covenant breaker while God is the covenant keeper. And though Israel rejected God, God did not reject them. And this brings us to the future of Israel, or more accurately, a future for Israel. There is yet an unfulfilled future for the people of Israel. As Paul said, there will be inclusion for them, as we read in verse 12 of chapter 11. And while there is a past and a present that we briefly talked about, 
is also a future for the people of Israel in regard to the gospel. Mainly, or only actually, because God gives and his calling are irrevocable. And Paul could confidently, as a result of that, say that all Israel will be saved. For Paul, this is the mystery that God will allow a partial hardening to come to Israel so that the gospel will reach to the Gentiles. And once the full number of Gentiles have come in, whatever that number may be, then all Israel will be saved. Salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to stir Israel to jealousy. Just as the gospel came to the Gentiles because the people of Israel rejected it, so today God is using the Gentile Christians to move Israel to jealousy so that they or we would reclaim our God and our Messiah. When a Gentile knows more about the God of Israel, the prophet of Israel, and the scriptures than a Jewish person, then this causes him to a jealousy. And that jealousy can bring the Jewish person to Christ. Forty some years ago, I heard the gospel, as I mentioned it earlier, to a Gentile person. By the way, he's now 73 years and two weeks ago, I visited him in, in Davis in uh, Northern Cali California. I heard the gospel to him. He was the one that discipled me to the Ministry of Navigators and New Life uh, OPC Church, and now it's a PC, uh, PCA Church. But what Paul is done, doing, he's using the imagery that we find in Jeremiah 11 verse 16, referring to Israel as an olive tree, which is so common in the land of Israel. He tells us there is only one olive tree. There has always been only one olive tree, but that some of its natural branches have been broken off and wild olive shoots have been grafted in. The people of, the people of God, his church, have always been one. Under the Old Testament, his church was made up mainly of Jews, though not entirely. While under the New Testament, it is now composed mainly of Gentiles, but a remnant of the Jewish people as well. And I think one day that we would be in heaven, uh, there's a lot of things that we would be surprised by. You know, one of those things would be to really seeing God in his full uh, in his full glory. But I think the other thing that we might be a little bit surprised is to see certain people that we never thought would be there, that they are there. And there's the other side of it. We might be surprised to see some people that we thought for sure they would be there, that they won't be there. But one thing we know for sure, we would see many Gentiles, or we would see many Jewish people as well. When Romans 9 to 11 is about the future of Israel in the redemptive plan of God, yet it has much more than just for Israel. As these three chapters teaches us that God will keep his promises and will not change because he is faithful, it provides a great hope for us as his church 
today, made of, of Gentiles and the Jews. Because if for any reason God would have rejected Israel, then what hope we would have had as his church today? But actually because he remained and remains faithful to Israel, it gives us a great hope. A hope that no matter how deep we fall, God will not reject us as his church. He will not divorce us, his bride, and he will not adopt for himself a new people. On the other hand, if he would have rejected Israel, in a sense, we would be without hope. Because we as the Church of Christ are really not much better than the people of Israel in the past. Certainly the performance of the Church, particularly in the last few years, and I'm not talking about the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, show us that we are not much better than the Northern or even the Southern Kingdom of Judah. Israel gives the Church a wonderful hope, not a false hope, but a practical hope that it's based on their experience. And the fact that they were, they were so stiff-necked, they were so disobedient, they were covenant breakers, rejected their Messiah, help us even more today. And to God be all the glory. But thank God that the final act of God in his plan of salvation is yet to come and is yet to unfold. So beginning with verse 24 of Romans 11, Paul speaks about the day when God will bring back his people of old to himself. Paul reasons that if God was able to graft the wild olive branches into the cultivated olive tree, how much more he's able to graft back the natural branches. In his time, and when the full number of Gentiles has come in, then he will do it. Paul is referring to God's great mystery. The Israelites have temporarily rejected Christ so that the Gentiles would come in into God's new covenant. But God will yet bring the nation of Israel Back to himself. I think that this is really the amazing mystery of God's plan of salvation. We can almost imagine in our minds as Paul is sitting and most likely dictating this wonderful plan of God's salvation and his, this plan is unfolding uh, before his mind. He cannot but conclude with the great doxology of grace. As he says, oh the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his way. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsel? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and to him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. We all say amen. 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 And of course, we see in the recent years a paradigm shift uh, in Israel. We've spoken about the past, present, and future that we have seen there is a great hope for Israel, but also for the church because 
actually of the rejection of Israel. So I'd like to give you a few snapshots of the work of God today in Israel. Probably in the recent two decades, and particularly in the last few years, we've seen and experiencing a paradigm shift in Israel within the body of Christ. A paradigm shift that is a sign of the growth and the maturity of the body, which come with its blessings, but also with its challenges, as church history teaches us. But I believe that it's also what we are seeing today in Israel is the first food of what is yet to come in light of what we've seen in these three chapters of Romans. So I want to mention just a, a few points. The first one is recognition by the society. As Messianic Jews or Jewish Christians, we are always seen as a cult and on the fringe of the society. Till not long ago, an average Israeli had no idea what or who is a Messianic Jew. I remember some years ago, uh, I was traveling to the Ben-Gurion airport in Israel, and in my luggage, as always, I have many of the books that we published. And the lady that uh, was, uh, was going to the security check opened the luggage, and she saw all these books. Uh, and she said, you know, she said, what are these books? Uh, and I told her, well, you know, I'm a Messianic Jew, I, we publish books, and these are books about the New Testament and, and Christ. And she asked me, what is a Messianic Jew, or Yehudi Meshichi? And I started to tell her, it's okay, okay, that's okay. She didn't want to hear. But the fact was, she didn't know what is a, a Messianic Jew. But today, not only more and more Israelis recognize us, Certainly, the anti-mission like Yad Le'achim, uh, they do know us very well. In fact, if you go to the website, you can know a lot about the churches in Israel because they have all the information available there. But to a growing number of Israelis, we are considered and becoming more appreciated by them because they see our contribution to the welfare of the society at large. This is true for a few even official uh, government agencies. For example, the, the Knesset or Parliament uh, some years ago recognized an organization called Bad Chaim. It's a pro-life organization that runs by the believer. Uh, the cities of Ashdod, where our congregation is not very far from their uh, grace and truth, um, uh, they have recognized our work among the Holocaust survivors. And one of the deputy mayors in the magazine that they published once a month, a few years ago, uh, they put the number of our evangelists and talking about that, you know, if you want to go on a, on a free, day, free tour, uh, here is the number, and the, our, the number of our evangelists was on the picture. And it was nice because we didn't have to pay for a free advertisement. <laughs> the government uh, was, uh, was saying that. And I think especially what we are seeing, uh, some of the special, uh, unique, and uh, combat uh, military units are nowadays the officers, the high-ranking officers, are asking actually to have Jewish believers in their unit. These are units that you, uh, you must volunteer. You, the, the military can't tell you that you're going to be in, a, in the paratroopers or in some of the other units, but you have to volunteer. But many of the high-ranking officers, they want this young Jewish 
uh, Israeli believers because they know that these are obedient soldiers. They don't do drugs, they're not involved in uh, sexual immorality. And when there is a need to volunteer, they are the first ones mm. uh, to do that. And in fact, there has been many cases. In our, uh, in our congregation, we have at the moment 22 active soldiers that are serving in the military. I think probably most of them, maybe except two or three of them, have been asked by their commanding officer to talk before a group of soldiers about their faith. Now, it's not because necessarily the Israeli army is so very great, open and evangelistic, but it's because they see these young people, 18, 19 years old, uh, they look very Jewish, uh, they speak Hebrew, but at the same time, they say that they are Jewish, but they believe in the Old Testament, uh, in the New Testament. They're Jewish, but they believe that Jesus is the Savior, is the Messiah. And they see their life, and they see that there is something different. So most of that they don't know much about, they want to ask them to talk about their faith before the soldiers. Now, albeit the military, Israeli army is very, very liberal. So in one of the times that uh, uh, our middle daughter, our older daughter was able to talk about her faith, a week later they asked a lesbian soldier, lady soldier, to talk about her lifestyle. So we can see that. But nevertheless, the fact that the Israeli army is allowing believers to talk about their faith is something. Uh, is something. When I served in the military many years ago, they would only give you the Old Testament. Nowadays, in the Israeli army, if you tell them that you're a, you're a Christian, they would give you a New Testament. Mm. Now, albeit it's an English New Testament that was donated to them by the Trinitarian Bible Society, but nevertheless, the fact that the Israeli army would mm. give a New Testament to them is amazing. I, I'm praying for a day that our military would give New Testament together with the Old Testament, like what I have here, maybe in a smaller size, uh, but in Hebrew uh, to the believing soldiers. Uh, so that's something of a recognition uh, by the society. The second thing is that many of the young people that are coming to faith are not ashamed of the gospel. While there are still many Russian and Amharic speaking people who come to faith, we see younger generation of under 25-year-old Israelis coming to faith in the last few years. Many have a great zeal to share the gospel with their families, in the school, in the military, and university, and in their workplaces. Interesting enough to see that in our own congregation, in the last five years, the average age of those who were baptized was 22 years old. And of course, it means that some who were uh, older than 22 and some were younger. So they are not ashamed of the gospel. And then the other, the third issue is the rise of the young and a gifted new generation. In a recent young adult conference held by one of the ministries, there were some 400 teenagers gathered. And around the same time, a weekend of young adult conference was attended by around 450 attendees. So that's already, it's about 850 young people that are in the, under the age of the 19 or 20. And this is a significant growth comparing to only a few years ago, particularly when we're talking about 
the younger generation. Again, another example of, this is really, uh, again, uh, one of the ministries that Etty, my wife, is much involved in, and it's the Purim packages. Uh, the Purim packages, we, or the Purim festival, we read about it in the book of Esther, and one of the things that happened, people would send uh, gifts and parcels to, to one another. And so about uh, 14 years now, 14 years ago, uh, we started this ministry that in doing the Purim, we would send uh, packages to all the soldiers, I mean, the, not all the soldiers, but all the Jewish believing soldiers. We get their names from all the congregations in Israel, and uh, we sent packages. When we started that about 14 years ago, there were about 40 soldiers. This last February, a few months ago, we sent 240 packages, and that's not all of the believing soldiers that we know about. The one for Israel ministry that I was mentioned earlier uh, has created about 1,100 videos in Hebrew with a total of 240 million views, which has been wow. created with a high quality and professionally by gifted Israeli believers, and all of it is made in Israel, not made in China, made in Israel. <laughs> Uh, the fourth area that we see uh, a wonderful uh, paradigm shift is a higher theological degrees. Think recently pastors and ministry leaders who had any kind of formal theological education uh, were mostly those who came from abroad. Today more believers in Israel see the need to formally equip themselves theologically for the calling of God. Among the Hebrew speaking pastors, some 56% have a BA or a higher degree in theology. 16% of them have a PhD. And while still about 44% don't have such degrees, it is much smaller than what it was a decade ago. We are seeing a need to spend time and funds to equip ourselves theologically to serve the body of Messiah better now but also for the future. And the change is not only among the ministers, but also among the lay people. One of our deacons that is 62 years old, he's now he's doing his BA in theology at the age of uh, 62, uh, 62. In the first six months uh, of this year in Hagefen, our publishing ministry, an average of 450 books a month have left our storage rooms, either sold or given free. And that doesn't include the various uh, electronic e-books and the various videos and other things uh, that are downloaded. And this is, again, a huge increase compared to past years uh, that we can think. And then lastly is the numerical growth. I talked mainly about the quality growth, but now a little bit about the quantity growth as well. Two surveys from two different organizations in Israel estimated the number of believers in Israel to be around 26 to 30,000, and roughly about 300 congregations and home groups. Now that's not a large number when we think about 9 million uh, people, and based on the uh, missiologists, Israel is still uh, an unreached country in, in that sense. But when we think that in 1948, when Israel became a state, 
there were less than a handful of people, there were about, I think, 14 Jewish believers. And today, about 72 years later, there are some uh, 30,000 or so. Then we can see that the growth of that number is somewhat similar to the growth of the, the growth of the Jewish population. So these are encouraging signs of a paradigm shift, one that we need to be thankful to the Lord of the harvest, but also prayerfully make sure that we are putting our efforts in the most effective way, because they are very limited. But the shift is yet another sign that more not only needs to be done, but particularly that more is to be expected from the faithful God, because there is yet a glorious future for the people of Israel, but also for the Church of Christ. And Israel, once again, will become a spiritual light to the nations. So in conclusion, we started this last seminar by reminding ourselves that everything that God does above all is for His glory. So as we talked about the past, present, and future of Israel, we must recognize that the big story here is not Israel, but it's God. His faithfulness and His glory. God has been and will be faithful to His covenant despite of Israel's failures and rejection of Him. Salvation has always been of God and is totally independent of our efforts or our works. Throughout history, the Jewish people have rejected their God and yet He has never rejected them. He has granted them all the blessings that He promised them. Israel at the time of Christ, in keeping with their forefathers as we saw, rejected Jesus. But God continued with His wonderful plan of salvation had caused a temporary blindness to come to them so that to bring the full number of the Gentiles. Because after all, the God of Israel is the God of all the people. The day will come when Israel, all Israel, will be saved. And the word all in Pauline theology rarely means every single individual, but rather it means most or very large majority. I believe that it would not happen in one day when we wake up in the morning and we read the newspaper and says of the media that says the Jewish nation has become a, has become a Christian nation, but rather it would happen slowly and surely because God often works in a quiet ways. And I think that it's happening today and we are seeing its first fruit already today. By the goodness of the Lord, we live in an exciting time in the history of the church and the Jewish people. Each day, more and more people are coming to accept Christ as the Messiah, not only Jewish people, but amazingly to think that Iran is, has the largest number of Christians coming to faith is in that close country. We think about China, such a close country up to a few years ago, and despite of all the persecution that is going on, among uh, to the churches today, still the number of Christian Chinese is larger than the number of Communist Party Chinese. Hmm. Wow. And that's what scares the Chinese government. 
the church among the Jewish people is growing, both in Israel and elsewhere, both numerically, but also quantity. But at the same time, the need is great, the work is enormous, and the challenges are huge. But with God, nothing is impossible. Solely the Gloria. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for this amazing plan of salvation that no human being could have thought about it. How you work to one man, one family, one nation, and yet to that same nation who rejected you again and again, you send your blessing to the whole world. You send your son according to the times that the prophets of the old has predicted and has prophesied. You executed your plan in a perfect way, and we are the beneficiaries of that wonderful plan of salvation. And yet, in that grand and glorious story, we have a great hope. A hope that it's not because of us, it's not depending on us, but on you and you alone. And we know that because of who you are, despite of our shortcomings, one day you will bring us to the destination that you had set before in the foundation, before the foundation of the world. Because the God of Israel and the keeper of Israel shall not sleep nor slumber. But you will protect us until that day that we would face our glorious Lord and Master face to face. And then we would be like him because we shall see him as he is. Until that day, Father, help us to persevere. Help us to stand in the storm of our times, in the challenges that your church is facing, both here in America and also in Israel and other parts. But we are grateful for the promise that you will build your church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Amen. Amen. Amen.